Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Time. Hello and welcome to RNZ's Extra Time. I'm Barry Guy. On this week's edition of the programme, we discuss violence on the sports field. The issue hit the headlines again this week following a game of Premier Club Rugby in Wellington. But is it getting worse? We'll hear from the latest high-profile New Zealand female sports star to talk about mental fatigue and needing time out away from the competition. And there's an update on the standoff between New Zealand Rugby and the Players Association over the plan to sell part of the game's commercial arm to American investment company Silver Lake. A Wellington Rugby Club says they're sick and tired of racial abuse being hurled at players. Wellington Rugby is investigating a brawl between Maris and Pat's players and Old Boys University's supporters. Rob Evans is the chairman of MSP. Quite disgusting, to be honest, and... Um it's a blight on our game and our community that we continually have um, this, these, these racist uh, taunts and abuse and um, we're bitterly disappointed. Continued marginalisation of people uh, by race or whatever um, or religion or, or gender is just an, is intolerable and we need, to, um, we need to deal with this matter at the highest level and, and, and very you know, sensitively and it's an important factor if we want to, to move forward. Rob Evans of Marison Pats. I'm joined by RNZ columnist Hamish Bidwell and Gordon Noble-Campbell. Gordon is a former Premier referee in Wellington, a long-time member of the Wellington Rugby Referees Association and is currently chairman of the New Zealand Amateur Sport Association. Gordon, uh, you were actually there at the game last weekend. Rob Evans uh, gave the impression that the abuse was ongoing. How have you found it? Well, I think the uh, the events of last weekend were obviously quite appalling for everybody to witness who was at the ground at uh, at Wellington College. And there is always a proximate cause to any type of behaviour of this nature. And Rob has uh, has mentioned uh, one of the causes that uh, that he's identified. I think generally speaking uh, we need to think about this issue in two contexts, what's happened, what happens on the field and what happens off the field. In terms of on-field behaviour there are pretty strict protocols and ways of managing uh, situations where there might be conflict or unexpected situations with the match officials able to, to deal with that. I think in this case what we saw was the off-field behaviour come on-field and create what was a very uh, disturbing situation for everybody who witnessed it, who was who was at the ground. Uh, there, the factors which might have contributed to that as well were uh, whether or not the supporters uh, might have been um, uh, consuming or have consumed alcohol. Uh, there could have been uh, verbal. 
um, abuse, as, as Rob has mentioned. But the reality is the the situation was not resolved by the uh, players at, at, in the moment, I think, satisfactorily, or uh, the supporters behaving in an appropriate manner, uh, given the circumstances. Uh, so it, are you saying that if the players had shown some sort of leadership in some way on the field, that perhaps off the field things may not have escalated? Well, the, I, I think that um, certainly um, the, pl- the, the the teams that are on the field together have a responsibility not only to themselves, but to everybody else who is part of, of, of that environment. And uh, the situation where uh, matters are resolved by violent means, as we saw in this case, just clearly uh, is not appropriate and, and needs to be resolved uh, so that we don't see these circumstances happening again in the future. But I come back to this question or or the point of values. What are the values of the club? Why are they part of their community? What are they encouraging their youth and their children to participate in? And what type of role models are the senior players and and members of the organisation creating for the next generation coming through? Now, I think there are a number of factors which might contribute to to those values. Um, And... The extent to which we lose sight of the fundamental reason for sport being part of the community, the greater the issues will become. So what I mean by that is fundamentally what we are trying to do with community sport is bring people from diverse backgrounds together in a positive environment, enjoying a sport that they share a common interest in. Now, there is no place for any isms Uh, as part of that. And if, in fact, the situation arises, such as we saw last Saturday, it indicates quite clearly that the culture and the values are not right. What I would say here is that things like the English football team playing in Eastern Europe and what they should do when they're racially abused and stuff, I I didn't quite get what Gordon was going on about before in terms of, like, the responsibility of the players on the field. But what I would say in that regard is I think players should walk. I think, um, I think, until we start calling games off, whether they be football, cricket, rugby, rugby league, when people are racially abused or abused in any fashion, I don't think we're actually going to get anywhere. I think players are entitled to say, I'm not putting up with that, and referees are entitled to say, look, we're abandoning this game. And at that point, hopefully there's no confrontation, but at that point, I think authorities have to start being realistic about what's happening here. But equally, if I look at my own profession, I come on here and I say some things that are designed to provoke people i write columns with no nuance um they're just there to antagonize people and if you don't antagonize people you haven't done your job properly we like to think of ourselves as inclusive and tolerant and things like that as a society but we're not we're absolutely prejudiced we hate people we call them names all the time i wrote something about laurel hubbard last week and i got all sorts of abuse via social media from people who i guess ought to know better but clearly they don't do you know what i mean on the basis of something that i wrote now whether i hold those views about laurel hubbard or whether I don't, is neither here nor there. I expressed a view, and it was a view that people didn't like, and people can't tolerate other people's views anymore. The only thing they can do if they cite difference, or they're challenged in any way, is to react angrily and to name-call or to resort to violence. And 
you know, that's that's going to happen in sport because that's how we behave as a society. Hamish, uh, one of the things that um, um, occurred in the past month or so was as a result of um, abuse directed towards match officials in Ngātipuro East Coast Rugby, the union cancelled the whole weekend of rugby to send a message to the community that the type of behaviour was unacceptable and uh, should not ever be countenanced or be experienced by anybody involved with the game. I think that sent a clear message um, to the local community and I think Ngātipuro East Coast should be congratulated. So to your point around uh, taking a strong stand and where necessary calling off the ability for people to participate until such time as they understand the consequences of their actions and behaviour is, is absolutely fundamental. Sport NZ has, over the years, I, again, I did some research, uh, the continually uh, trying to send the, the, you know, the notice out there that what's required, respect and those sorts of things on the sideline, but I suppose it, it's falling on deaf ears in a way. Barry, those things are absolutely pointless. You can, I've seen little signs put up. People get a bib and they put it on and they try and walk up and down and say, hey, mind your manners. But you're worried about getting a bunch of fives. Do you know what I mean? No one's going to tell someone who's abusive to stop being abusive because we're frightened of that person. We're embarrassed of that person. We want to move away from that person. We're not going to go up and say, hey, man, we don't like your behaviour because we know what's going to happen. Like, this idea that we can sort of... Um, until the game's taken away, until the privilege of playing, until the privilege of watching is denied people, I don't think they're ever going to behave properly at games. You can't appeal to their better nature because I don't believe it exists anymore. If I can just make a comment in support of, of match officials who are given an extremely demanding job each weekend, whatever sport they might be involved with, my, my sport being, being rugby, there are a couple of triggers that I've noticed over the year that do influence behaviour, and one of those is language and the way that people are communicating to each other, both on-field and off-field. Now, as a match official on-field, you can do something about that. You can stop the game. You can pull out the player and say, listen, if that's the way you want to communicate to your teammates and others on this field, then unless it stops, you can go to the sideline. So tidy it up, or we'll stop the game right here. And that works. On the sideline, it's a similar kettle of fish, in the sense that the match officials do have the opportunity to stop the game talk to the team management and say, listen, this behaviour has to stop and in whatever circumstances actually order people from the ground. Now, it requires, to Hamish's point, a pretty tough disposition to be able to stand up and do that. And most of our match officials are good-natured people volunteering their time and they might, might not be inclined to do it. But there are, there are ways in which we can try and, and, and manage the issue. But the, going back to my earlier point around self-responsibility, Unless we have that around our community sports grounds in terms of behaviour and attitudes and values and culture, um, it's going to be remarkably difficult to solve. Does some of the responsibility then have to go back to the club management or the team management in some way? Totally, but it happens before the game as well. Now, um, a couple of the clubs that we were mentioning have as part of their branding the words fighting and bleeding. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, those are kind of um, emotional vocabulary that in somebody's mind at the wrong moment in time might result in a certain type of behaviour being exhibited. This is where it comes back to the coaches having a responsibility, as well as the club administrators, for determining what is acceptable in terms of the behaviour once you're in the team with the jersey on on the field, and then when you're off the field or supporting your team. Now, if there, are, there isn't clarity around those messages or they're mixed messages, and I suggest because of those two words there might be some mixed messages in that situation, then I think there's a potential problem that needs to be solved.
I played for Old Boys University. I played senior cricket around the country. And as soon as you walk over the line, in my day, you had an utter, absolute hatred of the opposition and you called them every name under the sun and it was completely unenjoyable to play. And you wondered why you did it because you just abused people from sun up to sundown and were abused in turn. And um, I just think there's something about the pack mentality, something about how we, we have to be aggressive. I think we've been hoodwinked by people like Australians and you know, in the way they sort of sledge people in sports like cricket and we think that that's how we ought to behave here and it's absolute nonsense and it, um, it, it achieves nothing. It just drives a wedge between fans and players and you know, a lot of the starts, we've talked about referees a little bit. When a referee or an umpire is incompetent or has no control, then things escalate between teams and when they escalate between teams, they escalate between the, te- the among the people who are watching and we just go round and round in circles. I just fundamentally think people have really badly behaved at sport and we just we need to accept that and until we you know as i keep saying until we take sport away from people and make them realize that it's, it's not their right to come and abuse people they'll just continue to, to do it mate when i was a kid we played in front of no one my father coached us in football and cricket and he would get a van a newspaper delivery van from his work and with no seats and he gave all of us a ride to the game no seat belts no seats we just rolled around in the back and mums and dads didn't come now you've got mums dads grandparents siblings all packed in on the sideline all heavily invested in how little johnny or little sally's going to go and when things don't go well or they see something they don't like on the other side they don't know how to control themselves we were extremely lucky to play in front of our coaches and maybe one or two parents and that was it no one came and it was a much better environment to play in as the as the child as the person out on the field If I can just pick up on that note, Hamish, and say, well, one of the factors that is perhaps coming to play is that many of our community clubs are perhaps considering themselves as sporting academies, whereby the next greatest, whoever, is going to emerge from our little community. And so parents have invested not just their hopes and dreams, but actually their money in little Johnny progressing. And let's be also uh, clear that those costs have gone through the roof for, for, for many codes as well. So... Coming back to why has little Johnny or Jane playing the game is going to solve a, a lot of the uh, questions that we see now emerging as we progress through the ranks within clubs. And I think if clubs have a very clear view that the main reason you're here is to contribute something to, to your community, to enjoy the game, to establish new relationships, friendships, and demonstrate what we stand for as values... Well, we're halfway there, but as soon as we're saying to the, the, the players, come with us because you're going to be the next All Black, um, then you change the, the dynamic and the paradigm for everybody that's involved with the game. And my thanks uh, to uh, RNZ columnist Hamish Bidwell and Gordon Noble-Campbell of the New Zealand Amateur Sports Association. New Zealand Rugby has been presented with an alternative capital raising option which the Players Association believes is much better than the Silver Lake deal. Investment company Forsyth Bar has suggested the sale of a 5% stake in New Zealand Rugby's commercial rights. Forsyth Bar and the Players Association believe the valuation of New Zealand Rugby's commercial rights is between $3.4 and $3.8 billion, 12 to 23 more than Silver Lake's valuation. 5% of that is around $191 million, almost $2 million less than what NZR expects to receive from Silver Lake. Our rugby reporter Joe Porter spoke to former All Blacks captain David Kirk, who is chairman of Forsyth Bar and president of the New Zealand Players Association. 
New Zealand Rugby recently got unanimous backing from the unions for the Silver Lake deal, but still needed the Players Association to agree. Kirk believes New Zealand Rugby must now seriously look at their proposal. What I think we have done is provided them with much more certainty and much more clarity about the nature of this deal. Now, it's, would, I think it would be very hard for them to say, oh, we're just not going to consider this because there's a lot of detail about it now and there's a lot of confidence that it can be executed. And very importantly, the valuation's higher. And so if you're a director of a company and someone comes along and says, I, I, I can help you raise money at a higher valuation, I think you've got an obligation to look at that. And Brent Impey at the time from NZR said that the 5% proposal would never work, that it would only be taken up by mum and dad investors and, and the big sort of capital investors and commercial management funds would not be interested. You were confident that's not the case? I am confident that's not the case. And Forsyth Bar is confident that's not the case. And I think actually just a straight assessment of the facts gives everyone confidence because we're, we're talking about a, a yield or, or a, a return to people of somewhere around 5% or a little bit more than that. You and I both know that if we put our money in the bank these days, we're not going to get anything like that. So it's an attractive proposition for people. Under the 5% IPO proposal, the provincial unions still get the same amount of money as they would from the Silver Lake deal. However, the initial injection of cash to NZR is significantly lower. Why do you think that difference in cash still makes the IPO deal with Forsyth Bar the better one? Um, Because it allows New Zealand Rugby to retain 95% of their revenue. One of the biggest concerns with the Silver Lake deal is New Zealand Rugby are selling 12.5% of their revenue forever. And if you if you think about that, if you sell 12.5% of your revenue and keep 100% of your costs, you're going to have an unprofitable business. And that's what, that's what that Silver Lake deal shows. Certainly New Zealand Rugby is not profitable out to 2025, which is the end of their forecast. But if you only sell 5% and retain 95%, then you can have a profitable operating business. And that's exactly what the numbers show, and that's a much less risky position for New Zealand rugby to be in. The, the trade-off for that is they, they don't get to put as large a lump sum in the bank um, on day one. But they will end up with significant reserves from having raised this money at a higher valuation from New Zealanders. Uh, so reserves are somewhere between 100 and 36 and 154 million on the estimations that have been provided. So that's very healthy reserves, certainly well above pre-COVID levels and above New Zealand rugby's stated aim to have reserves that are 40% of their cost base. And they'll have a profitable business. So those reserves will grow over time. Uh, we think those reserves are adequate and we think that not selling 12.5% of the revenue is a much better proposition in terms of Uh, having an operating business that's profitable and able to add to reserves as you go along. So essentially you believe that the IPO deal, while bringing in less cash straight away, will ultimately result in more revenue and a a more financially sustainable model for New Zealand rugby and also uh, eliminate any of the concerns over ownership claims with regards to the Silver Lake deal. Um, Obviously concerns that after their initial term or so has come up, they could sell off to sort of another company who don't necessarily have the skills, expertise or the interests of NZR at heart. That is one of the major concerns? That's a great summary, Joe. Yeah, we haven't really talked a lot about the about the other concerns about it, and that's one of them. There's also a, a concern that we lose a lot of capability ourselves if we're outsourcing effectively the, the the development of our commercial game. What happens when those people go away at the end of the term and they sell 
to someone else. So I think you know, distancing New Zealand rugby from the, their, their commercial operations has a real risk. And I, I frankly think we've got people in New Zealand who can do a pretty darn good job of growing New Zealand rugby if we give them the resources and, and, and the support and capability. That's David Kirk from Forsyth Bar and the New Zealand Rugby Players Association talking to Joe Porter. This is extra time. The rescheduled Rugby World Cup will likely be veteran Blackfern halfback Kendra Coxedge's last. The former World Rugby Player of the Year admits lifting the World Cup trophy at Eden Park in November next year would be the perfect sign-off to her career. But over the past year, the 32-year-old has had plenty of time to contemplate what it would take mentally and physically to make it to the showpiece event, and that's included some tough decisions. You know, I was absolutely gutted with the postponement, and um, for me, I think in hindsight now, um, after a couple of months of it being postponed, well, the announcement of it being postponed has has made me sit back and realise that, um, you know, I probably had a bit of mental fatigue hanging around that I probably wasn't actually fully aware of, and I was kind of just going to dig through for the next, you know, um, you know, nine months till the end of World Cup. But now, with the postponement, it's given me opportunity to take a break away from club footy, and um, you know, it was a hard decision to do that, and. I still need to think about how the next six months look for me individually in terms of making myself fresh, you know, come to a World Cup year next year. And, um, you know, unfortunately, Club Rugby had to be the first to go. Um, and I think, you know, I'm absolutely loving it. I've had a bit of a taste of what life is like outside of rugby. Uh, you know, playing in the Black Ferns for 15 years and, you know, playing overall for 29 years, it's, it's a long time and I've played, back, you know, year on year. So, um, you know, my management and the coaches, um, Glenn and that, have been very supportive in my decision to be able to have a break from club. Um, but at the moment, you know, I'm looking at kicking back into Farah Palmer Cup. Um, but as you know, as athletes, all athletes go through this. Um, and I know some are, Sophie Devine, and as well as the Silver Ferns captain, have been the same. Um, you know, so I know that they're, they're going through a bit of that. And it's just it's making those right decisions to put yourself first. And, you know, how important, you know, well-being is. And, you know, if you, you could be the best player in the world. But, um, you know, if you're mentally not there, then that's, you know, you're not going to be the full package. Kendra Coxedge has the backing of Black Ferns coach Glenn Moore, who says managing player welfare ahead of the World Cup is important. Someone like Kendra, um, and, and there's been others that I've sat down with and we've spent a number of hours going through just looking at what would come up, you know, what sort of loading we would have by the time we got to the World Cup and actually ensuring that, um, that they get some time out um, to refresh and, um, and then also it's really important that we have a ramp back in time as well so you know, they can't come off doing very little to going straight back into a test match. So, you know, we've got to have a real robust plan in and around that, which we've done. I'm joined by RNZ Sports reporter Felicity Reid. Felicity, the admission from some of our top women athletes about uh, mental fatigue is perhaps no surprise because of recent years, the push to have women competing and in competitions comparable to men. It's uh, to be expected, and now they're facing similar issues. That's right, Barry, they are, and I think... If we use that example of the male athletes, because they're pretty much guaranteed that pack schedule, they can pick and choose which tournaments they play in or take sabbaticals and no one really flinches. But sometimes these women have to battle just to get games domestically or internationally. So when an opportunity comes along, I think there's a bit of pressure to make the most of it, as Kendra was mentioning, which leads to those like back-to-back seasons where they're playing club level, provincial level, then internationals, and there's very little downtime sort of they're not treated as professional athletes, but they're expected to go out on the um, field and off the field and 
be as if they are professionals. Uh, yeah, it, may, it makes me think that, you know, in recent years uh, that more and more uh, women and women's sports are becoming professional, that uh, there's perhaps a feeling that, well, I'm lucky to be doing this. I shouldn't be complaining. Exactly. That is a lot of what we hear as well. So for some of the men, you don't really have to promote an All Blacks brand or a Black Caps brand. But for the women, there's that little bit of pressure as well to sort of be an advocate for their sport as well. There's a little bit of, you know, it's quite easy for an All Black or their manager to turn down a um, appearance request or something like that. Whereas for the women showing up to all of these things and doing things kind of outside of the game as well, is value for their sport. So there's kind of that outside pressure as well to not only be a really top player playing in all of the opportunities that you get given, but also can you please go out there and promote your sport as well to get more interest or to show showcase what we can do. Do you think uh, New Zealand's accepting of um, uh, the need for uh, our top women's sports stars to be given time off? Well, as in speaking with Kendra this week, and as we just heard, she was quite upfront and honest about the situation she's found herself in. But sometimes that hasn't always been the case, and whether it's the decision of the athlete or the governing body, but with, say, Sophie Devine and Amelia Anikinashio, the original reason for them through the official channels as to why they weren't playing or training was kind of vague before it came out and emerged what was really going on. So there is an increased comfort in society, I think, these days around whether it's an athlete or not, coming forward and saying that they are struggling and that maybe these women feel more supported in each other as we see sort of more of them being quite open about it. But it is, I guess, in society as well, the more that we understand that men and women both go through these things, that there are more opportunities when we sort of look again at that parity, but that we are more comfortable to go, okay, well, if this is the situation that an athlete's facing, maybe they do need to take time out and that it won't be frowned on. And as I'm sure back in the day that male athletes faced one of the, probably one of the first ones who would have come out or that would have faced a bit more backlash than anyone would now. Thank you very much, Felicity Reid. That brings us to the end of Extra Time. My thanks to Hamish Bidwell, Gordon Noble, Campbell and Felicity Reid. Extra Time is brought to you by RNZ in association with Stuff and Locker Room and is available every Friday afternoon. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public, iHeartRadio and, of course, at rnz.co.nz. Give us a rating if you would. That helps a whole lot and means other listeners can find us much more easily. I'm Barry Guy. Ka kite Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.